Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. Today we're going to rewind a little further than yesterday. Yesterday we only went back about two years, and, and today we're going to go back four. Uh, almost exactly four years, uh, one day shy of four years back. January 12th. 2016, this episode was originally episode 1707, and it was called Using Logical Methods and Function Stacking for Decision Making. And it, 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 it came out of two things. It came out of the, 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 the listener feedback show that was done the day before this show was done, which really focused a lot on saving money and a penny saved is a penny earned type of thinking, um, being creative with how you deal with taxation, things like that. It also came from a question about a product and how maybe the product being asked about was the wrong product. And for the same money, you could actually get three products that worked together and did more things. And you'll hear more about that when you hear this episode. And it spurred on the concept that we talk about function stacking in permaculture design all the time. But we can use logic and function stacking in our decision-making in just about everything that we do in life, and that leads to greater liberty. I won't say much more on that, because this episode does a really good job of covering the subject, so I don't need to really add to the subject itself. What I want to add to it is some of the things we've talked about lately with my soon-to-come book called Laws of Life. And in that book and in the shows that I've done about my laws of life, I've constantly hit on the concept of the mental computer. When I did this show all those years ago, I had a picture of a, a person with their kind of their brain exploding into a multiverse, you know. And the caption in that image, and it's in the rewind notes today, is the most powerful computer in the world, but only if used. But what I wasn't really teaching back then, and this is really so important, and I've been talking about it lately, and I kind of want to give you this as fodder for going back into this older episode. Not only is that computer brain of yours so powerful and, and needs to be used for it to be valuable, but it is being programmed every day. Every single day. I've, I've been having this conversation more and more with my grandson, who's, who's you know nine years old now. And... It's interesting to watch him try to really get what it means. A nine-year-old is, you know, different mentally developed from hopefully an adult. And it might be a little harder to understand. But we've been talking about how when people get together in, in a group and they decide what TV shows they're going to put on TV, that they call it programming and what that means. Because he gets, he switched on to what programming a computer means. Doesn't know exactly how to do it. He's not a programmer. He's nine. But he understands that computers do things because people write things into them that make them do things. But he's struggling a little bit with the concept that people do things because they're programmed by various elements of society to behave a certain way. That they're taught to behave a certain way. And sometimes that can actually be a good thing. We learn with programming from our parents not to steal or to hurt people and things like that. But we also, if you can program people for good, you can program them for just about anything. And I'm trying to figure out how you break this down, and I've, I've taught him about the phrase break it down Barney style, for a nine-year-old. 
But as I do that, I realize that it's really actually something that's difficult for a lot of people to grasp, even in their 20s, 30s, 40s. We're all, in fact, the older you are, if you've never really thought about it, the harder it may be to, to break through this and make you actually understand. It's not just the TV, the mainstream media, etc., the, the, the indoctrination centers they call schools, that program you. It's literally everything is programming your brain all the time. Because your brain is a self-learning computer. That's the most important thing about this. We talk about self-learning algorithms, artificial intelligence, etc. What we're, what we're emulating is the fact that our brains are self-learning computers. And that works like this. The brain takes in a piece of code, processes a piece of code, and uses it to write new code. And whether that code is good code Neutral code or completely shitty code is totally on you because you are the lead developer and the lead programmer in programming your brain. That and it's very important to understand that there is a there is whether you like it or not there is a team of millions of programmers competing to put lines of code into your brain. But if you think about a, a development team and you have a head programmer who reviews all the lines of codes, debugs them and decides what actually gets entered and what doesn't at the head of a team, that's you. That's you. It's supposed to be you. Now think about what happens if you have a team like that, and they're actually all trying to do something good, and your, your, your head developer, your lead developer doesn't do his job, and he just dumps everything in. You end up with a pretty screwed up result, even if everybody kind of knows what they're doing. Now, imagine that there's some people on that team that want the program to do something bad. Now what if the lead developer doesn't do his job? That lead developer's you. When it comes to evaluating situations and considering what you know, extrapolating what you don't know, and then proceeding accordingly, you're that lead developer. That's what we're going to talk about today. You have to think before you act. You have to do an elements analysis for most decisions and find ways that one thing or action can be multiplied to do more. But yet we don't think that way. We want someone to think for us. We want somebody to tell us what the answer is. Instead of picking apart something that we have as an opinion, we seek evidence that proves we're correct. And because of that, we will give ourselves permission to do stupid things that waste our money and our time. Because, well, I'm right about this thing that I want to believe. There is nothing more dangerous than wanting to believe something sufficiently so that you choose not to challenge it. But this is where we are in the world today. And we, we fail to understand that small actions are huge in the battle for liberty. Because small actions over time add up. And the reason that's dangerous is because small inactions add up, and small poor actions add up, small bad decisions add up, small tiny pieces of shitty code entered into your brain add up. And as always, tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock is ticking for us all. We all have that dash, that hyphen. 
At some point, we'll be eulogized, hopefully. Somebody will care that we're gone. They'll put down our name, they'll put down those two dates, and they'll put that dash in the middle. That dash is you. That dash represents everything you ever did or didn't do. From the time you were squeezed out of your mama till they laid you in a hole, set you on fire, whatever they do with you, with your corpse, when, you're, when your soul is gone from your body, everything gets summed up in that dash. That dash is incredibly valuable. And it's one thing to have a get-shit-done attitude. That's great. It's one thing to know that you have to make the most of it, but there's a thing, there's a reality to this. And that is, if we're doing it poorly, it doesn't matter that we're being very, very active. We're making huge mistakes. You know, when I talk about this, when I talk about the concept of self-learning computers and how that relates to the brain, when I talk about the fact that we're constantly being programmed and that it is our responsibility to be the lead programmer, when I talk about the fact that it's tiny things for the good that create a great life or tiny things for the bad that create a pretty mediocre or a, a failed life, when I talk about all these things, you know what people tell me? Jack, why don't we teach this in school? Do you know what my response to that is? Why would you ever think that we would? Why would the people who seek most to control you ever give you the mechanism for freedom that is understanding that you have a right and a duty to yourself to be the lead programmer to the programming that everybody's trying to put in your brain? Why would they ever, ever want you to think this way? Why would you ever have teachers being instructed to teach children to challenge them? Why would you ever expect that? And I can tell you why. Because programming's working. That's why. That's why you're asking that question. That's why you actually think that there is a potential that we could have a society where the people in power seek to educate the populace as to how to break free from that power. It's because the government indoctrination centers, known as government schools, are delivering the exact product that they're supposed to. One that believes in dependence upon a system. And the only way to break that dependence is to take control of the most powerful thing that exists in the world. The human mind. The human mind is the most powerful thing that exists anywhere that we know of. I always stay open to the fact that there could be some, some being somewhere that's smarter than us. Somewhere in those billions of galaxies, there could be another rock orbiting a star with a, with a, 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 a species far more advanced than us. Or far more capable of being advanced than us. But as far as we know, there is nothing. And you could say whatever you want, and either humans understand that thing, or humans created that thing. Humans can perceive of things that are way more powerful than we are as individuals, but yet we can seek to counteract them. We can be prepared as modern survivalists. Nothing. Anything that's a natural phenomenon just has raw power. There's no thought to it. There's no decision-making. Something like the, 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 the fusion of hydrogen that is at the heart of the energy that is our sun. Sure, that's more powerful than any human. But there's no consciousness to that. None. 
It is only our minds that have the ability to actually figure things out, make decisions, take what we know, figure out what we don't know, and extrapolate a new result and write new lines of code into our brains. Even the artificial intelligence that's being developed, as amazing as it is, not only doesn't it stand up to what we can do yet, we built it. We built it. Without us, it couldn't exist. We have all this power, and yet we seek someone else to tell us what to think, how to think, when to think, and what to do. No thanks, guys. Not me. I'll think for myself, and I encourage you to think for yourself as well. Hopefully that primes the pump as we go back four years ago, January the 12th, 2016, using logical methods and function stacking for decision-making. And remember, while these Rewind episodes are pretty much uh, devoid of commercial content, you can always support the Survival Podcast and the work we do. How? Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And if you get a chance, come see me Saturday or Sunday in Belton, Texas at the Mother Earth News Fair. Um, what I want to talk about today, again, is using logical thinking, you know, logical methods and function stacking in our decision-making. And sometimes it's function stacking, one thing that can do many things, and sometimes it's the converse. It's, it's, it's actually figuring out that in some instances you're actually better off if multiple things do all the things you want done, and some of them have redundancies upon each other. It all depends. Uh, all-in-one thinking has a place. There are some all-in-one or multi-tool-like devices and systems that make a lot of sense. And then there's times where it doesn't make as much sense. Before we get into that deeply, though, I want to start out with something that most people would look at when we, we talk about things like this and say, much of this is common sense. All right, And I, I want to kind of talk about what common sense is and why it isn't as common as we, we feel that it should be. Um, the biggest reason that common sense isn't as common as you would expect it to be is people don't even know what it is. I guess maybe it's not common sense to know what common sense is because we've gotten so far away from common sense in our society that we don't discuss it anymore. It's kind of one of those things that you kind of... Uh, wax at poetically and, and nostalgically of when it was common. You know, Common sense used to be common, but it's not now. It, it, common sense exists today. Now, it's no doubt that people's thinking has become lazy, and that has made it not as common as it, as it should be, but it exists, and you, you see it every day. You really do. I know you don't think you do because of how we've twisted the meaning of it, but... The way common sense is applied is necessary to understand why we don't see more of it. Actual common sense means that you evaluate the situation, right? Whether it's something spilled on a floor and you need to clean it up, or a car broke and you need to get it running again, or there's a screw that needs to go into a piece of wood. It doesn't matter what it is, right? It could be a highly complex thing or a very simple thing, but you still evaluate it. And then you consider the things that you know. So I know what needs to happen, and I know certain things about this type of a situation. All right? I have historical context, I have you know experience, whatever. I consider those things. And then I'm still looking at something I'm not sure exactly what to do next. So what I do is I extrapolate what I don't know 
based on the knowledge and experience that I do have. So when I look at something and I realize that if I want to put something up on a shelf, I know enough about balance from experience, and I don't put a large item on top of a relatively small item that either can't support its weight or would be balancing it like a, you know, like a, what do you call them, a teeter-totter, right? Like a, I don't know, what the hell do you call those things again? Jeez. Um, and a playground. Good God, a freaking seesaw, right? That's what I meant, it's a seesaw, seesaw teeter-totter, right? And there's a perfect example of what we're talking about there. Sometimes it's not that we don't have the knowledge, but... All of us, no matter how smart we are at times, will get into points of impasse where we're reaching for a word that you don't know. You, you know the word, but you can't recall it this second. You, you were, your mind strayed to something else, came back, and you, it's like a word that you should know, but it just won't come to you, just like it happened to me there. Well, that also happens with, you know, the application of knowledge beyond just a word. Like, I knew that. How many times have you said that to yourself? Ah, God, I knew that. Right? That, oh, I should have thought of that. Right? So there is two things that impede common sense application. And one is a lack of sufficient knowledge and experience to actually use common sense for this particular problem. And the other one is, for some reason, a lack of focus that allows that to happen. The lack of focus can be because you've got too much going on, you're too stressed, you haven't If it's a technique or a, 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 something that you do kind of on the fly, you may not have drilled it enough. You may not have enough experience with it that even though you can do it well without stress, you can't do it well with stress. That's why we do training. But, but that's what common sense really is, is the application of knowledge and experience. And the reason we refer to it as common sense is that you would expect that a person by a, you know, at the time they're a young adult in life, would have enough knowledge and experience to have a reasonable amount of ability to extrapolate and, and do things when they may not know every single thing about it. That there's enough background information now to proceed forward. And the truth is, the more human people behave, the more common sense they'll have. And this is why common sense is in danger. Okay, because we don't behave like humans anymore. If you have little boys that go out and throw rocks at trees, they develop hand-eye coordination. And they, it's not just hand-eye coordination. They learn certain things about trajectory. There's a lot of math involved in lobbing a rock at a tree 25 feet away and hitting the tree. And there's a lot more math involved in hitting the tree at a certain spot And then there's a timing of mathematics and the duration of the rock flies through the air. This is just one example. Kids used to play this way. We, they played tag. They ran around outside. They did stuff. Little boys built stuff with their dads, and little girls did stuff in kitchens with their mothers, and vice versa. I don't mean to sound sexist there, but it's just kind of the way things flowed just 25, 30 years ago. It was more that way. But I've always loved to be outdoors and in the kitchen. Okay, And when you, you think about it, when you cook, cooking teaches a skill set of common sense. You learn that things are hot, things are cold, that if you do things a certain way, they work out, and in a certain way, they don't. That There's things that are really critical, like when you bake, if you don't get a recipe pretty close to what it's supposed to be, you don't get a good result. But if you're sautéing meat and you use a little less or a little more seasoning, as long as it's not something overpowering and you've done too much of it, it doesn't really matter. You can completely change everything up on the fly and not worry about some things, but other things require greater detail. 
Now, do you understand why common sense is becoming an endangered species in the United States? It's not because people are being dumbed down directly. It's because we're not behaving like human beings. Little kids are told not to run around outside, not to throw rocks, not to play tag, not to play hide-and-seek, not to engage in activities that are competitive in nature when they're five and six years old because somebody's feelings might be hurt because they're freaking lost. Right? This isn't a rant. This is a reality. Okay? I, I, I'm done ranting about most of that stuff most of the time anyway. Every once in a while I can center my skin and I blow my top on it. I, because... What I've realized is, again, circle of influence and circle of concern. We can't fix that society in general has created this lunacy, but we can make sure that our children don't have to 100% partake in it. I make sure that when my grandson comes over here, if he wants to pick a stick up and hit a tree with it, that's fine. I'm not going to tell him he's being too violent. He's a five-year-old boy. Of course he has some violence in him. I'd rather him hit a tree than his buddy when he's at school, when he starts school in the fall. Right? And having outlets for aggression not only allow that aggression out, they allow him to learn things. Like I watched him hit a, a tree with a stick, and the branch flew off and hit him in the head. He thought about it and realized, i got to be careful when I'm doing this now. He was making pretend soup with his grandma the other day in a, in a big bucket with full of rainwater, and he was throwing rocks in it, and Dorothy showed me a video. He threw a rock in. He had never done this before. So the big rock goes in the water. He's looking over. You know what happens. The, the water gave him instant feedback that that was not the way to do things. So he gets hit in the face with the water. So the next time he puts a rock in, he puts it in really soft, and he still kind of goes back, and he drops it and sees what happens. goes, oh, okay, now if I just set that rock in there and let go of it, instead of plunking it with my face over it, you know, I'm not going to get hurt. Well, I'd rather him learn that from a rock in water than not learn that because he doesn't get that experience, and when he's 16 and finally decides to fry some chicken wings, because he heard that's how you do it, and he has screaming hot oil, and he throws a chicken wing in there and burns himself or sets fire to the place. Okay, this is where we've, this is how we've gotten here. We haven't gotten here because the school system sucks, though it does. It doesn't explain this lack of common sense. It's a lack of experience that is is, is trying to eradicate and exterminate common sense. So we need to think about that. Because when we think about that, we start realizing what common sense, what its limitation is. And its limitation is how much knowledge you have to apply to what's in front of you. So, for instance, you and I, and almost everybody listening to this, knows that there are primarily two types of screws, a straight standard screw and a Phillips screw. A Phillips screw is the one that looks like kind of an X, okay, a cross, And then there's two different kinds of screwdrivers. There's a straight screwdriver, and there is a Phillips screwdriver. And we also know there's multiple sizes of screwdrivers, number ones, number twos, etc. So if we saw a screw that needed to be turned, and it had a Phillips head, it would be common sense for all of us to go get a Phillips screwdriver and turn the screw with it. If the only thing in front of a person were straight screwdrivers... And they, for some reason, had never had the experience to see or know or have the knowledge of a Phillips screwdriver. They wouldn't seek out a Phillips screwdriver. They would take a straight screwdriver that had the closest matching to one of the X's and use it to turn the screw. If they had enough common sense to extrapolate, hey, this seems like it can make that screw turn. If they didn't know there was a such thing as a screwdriver, they might use a pair of pliers or vice grips if they could figure out how those worked. And it's based on what I'm aware of and what I have knowledge of. And this is where common sense goes awry. 
let's say you did have a Phillips screw that needed to be turned. And let's say you had absolutely no availability of a Phillips screwdriver, though you were aware they existed. And the only way to get a Phillips screwdriver was to drive five miles, buy one, and come back. And you didn't really have the time to do that. And in front of you is a straight screwdriver that's about the right size. And even though it won't be perfect, it'll work. What are you going to do? Well, if you have common sense, you're going to use the straight screwdriver as long as it'll get the job done. You know it's not the right tool for the right job, for the famous quote, right? But it's what you have available. Unfortunately, there are people today that are so divorced from this thinking that if they don't have the Phillips screwdriver, they won't turn the screw. It, because they've been drilled in their mind that it may not work, it may not be safe, it's not the right thing, so they can't adapt. So this goes two ways. Lack of knowledge and misapplied knowledge. And it comes from not being humans. Because if you're the kind of kid that grew up throwing rocks at trees, you're playing outside and running in the grass and doing it without your shoes on and stepping on a sticker bird and going, oh, that's why they tell me to put my shoes on before I go outside. You go fishing and grab the fish and it spines you in the hand. You go, okay, I need to, not, I need to figure out how to deal with this. Right? If you live a human lifestyle, if you actually eat food that grows on a tree and you pull it off the tree and eat it, then you know where your food comes from. You don't need some elaborate article by an intellectual explaining to you that apples really come from apple trees and there's different varieties of apples and, and, and that they taste better when they're fresh. You don't need that because you've experienced it. So keep that in mind as, as we kind of go through what we're talking about today because what I want to tell you about is a question that came up. So last week, and there, again, there's an article at Nine Mile Farm you can link to from today's show notes to see this, where, where someone asked about using a butane or a propane stove in the house, and was it safe? And there's a common sense lesson there, because as Steve Harris pointed out, and I didn't follow up, if it wasn't safe to use a propane stove uh, in the house, then everybody with a propane stove, actual full-size range, would be dead. They'd be dead. Propane stoves are safe for use in the house. And this led me to recommend the my favorite camp stove. It's made by Camp Chef. It's a two-burner stove. It's got 17,000 BTUs. And I said, if you have an electric range and you buy one of these, you'll end up often, just because it's nice to be outside when you're cooking, with this thing sitting on a table outside, cooking outside just because it's more pleasing to cook on. It really is. Gas is the way to go for frying, sautéing, and stuff like that. Every cook in the world will tell you they'll use electric only when they have no other choice. It's absolutely the case. So somebody posted a comment, uh, follow-up to that, and asked about another product made by Camp Chef. It looks like a very similar stovetop, but it also has a small oven underneath it. It's quite large. And said, but it's only got uh, 7,000 BTUs of power versus 1,700 BTUs of power. The one I recommended that's just the flat, relatively small, you know, height-wise uh, stovetop has 17,000 BTUs, sells for about 98 bucks, shipped for free on Prime. The one that he asked about is $213. Again, I'm sure it's high quality. It's made by the same people. But here's how I applied the knowledge we're talking about today to that question. First of all, again, I'm sure it's good. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. If you want one, go ahead and buy it. But the way I look at it, first of all, this thing's bulky. 
It's bulky. And if you're, so from experience, I know that if you want to be able to use something when you need to use it, you should be using it when you don't need to use it. And the more experience that you have with it, the more proficient you'll be with it, and the more seamless it'll be, the, the powers, because this was for people with electric stoves, my power's out, I don't have a stove, I need to cook now. Well, if I can just pull it out and cook, I'm better off, okay? So since the, the one I recommended is smaller, sits nicely on a tabletop, it's relatively lightweight comparatively, it's, it's less complex, there's less things that go wrong, you're more likely to use it. You're more likely to say, you know what, it's Sunday, it's beautiful outside, the birds are singing, we have a steaming cup of hot coffee, let's go out on the deck, fry our eggs and bacon and sausage and potatoes out there, and eat outside. You're, you, and if you do that, you'll gain experience. Where this more bulky one, you know, if you're setting it on a, you know, a picnic table or something like that, it's a little less convenient to do that with, so you'll use it less. It's heavier, it's got to take up more space and storage, it's bulkier, and the oven, while nice, isn't really that practical because the actual inside dimensions of it are not that big. So, with all that in mind, if I wanted an oven and I was willing to spend $213, that I might do this. First, buy the one that I recommended, which is, again, about 100 bucks, and then go somewhere like Walmart and buy a Coleman camp stove. Was simply a little metal box with space underneath. You can set it on a, a propane cooktop like the one we're talking about here. You can set it over campfire coals. You can set it on a grill. You can set it on an actual stove top. I mean, there's a million different ways to use this thing. Pretty good temperature control. Great reviews. There's all you know. You have to learn how to use it. You don't just throw it on there, turn the heat up, and expect it to be exactly 350 degrees, especially if you're using coals from a campfire or something. But in the end, this is a pretty easy thing to learn how to use. It's $30. So now I've spent $130 versus $213, and I have two. Two is one, one is none. If either breaks, I still have the other one. Also, the cheap Coleman camp stove, even I say cheap, I mean financially. It's a pretty well-made thing. I know a lot of people that use them. Folds down flat, it's only two inches high. So when I put it away, it'll take up less space combined with the original cooktop than it will if I had this monstrosity that I consider the other stove to be. It also is flexible where I could take just my cooktop somewhere if I wanted to tailgate with it, or if I was going, you know, camp, car camping or what have you, and I was just going to have, stay there for one night and have a campfire, and I was going to do all my cooking on the campfire, but I might want to whip up some biscuits or something like that. Well, I could take this lightweight, compact, foldable oven with me to do just that. So one or the other, or both can serve in functionality together. I've still spent less money. But let's say I had budgeted that amount of money, and I was willing to spend that amount of money, um, for this particular purpose in life. Well, I still got 85 bucks left. So what I would do then is I would go out and buy myself a really nice Dutch oven for you know, like a six-quart Dutch oven for about 60 bucks. And I might buy one with little stand feet on it uh, and, the little, and the lid that has the rim where you can actually campfire cook with it. You can put it on the stove. You can put it in the oven. That won't fit in the, the Coleman oven, but it would certainly fit on the Camp Chef stove. I can campfire cook with that. I can use the lid as a frying pan. I can make chili. I can make stew. I can, I can make biscuits in it. I can use it as an oven oven. So now I have two ovens. 
or I have a thing I can make biscuits in and an oven I can make, or I mean, I have a, an oven I can make biscuits in and, a, and a, a thing I can make chili in and I can still saute and fry with my, you know, regular pans or whatever in my stove. And I've still got 15 bucks left over. And I now have a Dutch oven that leads me to a whole different skill set of cooking. There's a whole plethora of things we can do going down the road of Dutch oven cooking and just using a fire pit in our backyard. So now we can take something simple, you know, whether you have just the ability, because of where you live, to have a plain old just make a circle of rocks fire pit and have campfires in our backyard. Or, you know, if you had to because of your situation, one of those fire bowls that you can buy for about 40 bucks from all those different stores, we set one of those up, we still Dutch oven cook in that. Right? And we could use a Dutch oven on top of a, a burner, a side burner. We use it in our, our actual stove in our house. We can use it on our stovetop. It's a very flexible, very versatile thing. And I still got 15 bucks left over. So if I'm going to do campfire cooking, now I can buy a, a, a lid handle for my Dutch oven for handling the hot lid and, you know, dealing with the coals that are on it if I'm doing an overhead cooking. Uh, or if I don't need that, I could go out and buy a couple six packs of beer to enjoy while I'm playing with all my new technology. Or I could go buy some food to actually start cooking and getting experience. Now, all of those lead to a better solution, in my opinion. I still wouldn't fault the person who would buy the integrated all-in-one type unit. But it will never do as much as these. And it will never lead me to as much skill development. And it's not difficult skill development. It's not anything to be afraid of. It's not like you have to learn engineering, you know, at, at an MIT level or something to do these things. You know, housewives on the prairie in, in the 1800s uh, going across the nation figured out how to do all types of things, how to bake bread in Dutch ovens. And they weren't the most educated people in the world, but because they were acting in a very human manner, interacting with their surroundings, they had a whole shitload of common sense. Okay? And, and this is how we have to do thinking if we want to get somewhere. And it doesn't even mean that you make a decision to buy all the stuff I just said. Because as you continue the exercise, you might determine, but I already have a Dutch oven. So common sense would tell you, save that $60, unless you definitely want another Dutch oven. Or you might say to yourself, I know self, for $60, I can go down to the local antique mall and probably find a Dutch oven that's 100 years old, that's made out of milled cast iron, that's even better than what I can buy from Amazon or the store. I can do business with a local merchant on a used item. That might even avoid sales tax in many states. That thing might need a little bit of refurbing, but then I'll learn how to refurbish cast iron. I'll bring that home and refurb it, and I'll put something that's 100 years old back into service, and it'll probably still be in service 100 years from now. But you would have to have the knowledge that that's possible. You'd have to have the knowledge that that's possible. And all of this leads to a compounding effect when you start applying it together. Something I'm working on right now that I've talked about, I'm going to give a better description of it today than I've ever given before, is my new quail aviary for pastured quail meat and eggs. And I've seen a lot of people since I've talked about this that already have been or are starting to use cattle panels to build similar things. I still have yet to see anybody doing it the way that I'm doing it. I'm not saying it's never happened. I'm saying what I'm doing is kind of taking this thinking to a higher level. Now, if you've been all cool with the backup cooking methods, because that's a legitimate preparedness topic, but you're not into the permaculture stuff and quail and you know agriculture, listen anyway. Because it's not about a quail or an egg. It's about thinking and systems-level thinking. 
So my basic quail aviary is going to be 48 feet long. That is a huge footprint for something small like a Courtenix quail. Okay, and and on top of that, it's actually broken into 16 sections, and the quail will only ever be in one section at one time. There's a method to my madness because I could cram the same amount of quail into like two stacks of cages that would take up, oh, I don't know, about eight feet by eight feet, which would be a lot less space. But I can never produce the quality of product, and I can never deliver the level of functionality and function stacking that this system will do. So that system is going to be 10 feet wide, 48 feet long, and the arch is completely built out of cattle panels. And that, that project's in construction right now. It's beautiful out today because it's not a weekend day when I have all day long. So I hope to wrap the show up out and get up there and build my third box, my last 16-foot box today, so I can start putting up the arches. Into each of those boxes is going about four and a half inches of fill dirt. That fill dirt will then be seeded with clovers and, and grasses and all kinds of stuff that quail like to eat, that put down roots, that hold the system together, uh, where the quail can browse. Each of the sections will be divided by doors. So you have a 16-foot section and a door. You open that door, you have another 16-foot section, another door, you open that section, one more door. You kind of get it. It's a big, long line. It looks like a giant covered wagon, like the housewife that made the Dutch oven bread, used to cook, you know, used to ride in when she was making her Dutch oven bread, okay? On top of that will be hardware cloth. This keeps the quail in and it keeps predators out. I could do chicken wire. The quail can't get through the chicken wire. It would cost a little bit less money, but yellow racer snakes can get through the chicken wire. By going to the hardware cloth, the snake can't get in. So now I've predator-proofed my system. That's an awful lot to do just to grow quail and quail eggs. I have to get more out of it to justify the expense, the time, and the money. Now, actually, the expense isn't that much greater. This is about a $1,000 setup, and to set up enough top-quality quail cages, not racked-together stuff, but top-quality, if I were to buy them, would cost me about the same amount of money. But it would sure be less labor, and it would sure be easier. Okay? So we have to, if we're going to make an investment, this is part of this thinking process, I have to get more out of it for the additional effort. So the first thing I get out of it is get a quail product of a bird that actually can be a bird. You know, it's 120 square feet for, you know, 80 birds that are, you know, about as big as a coffee cup to run around in, in each section. Uh, and these are birds that, that, that comfortably live, you know, 10 birds to like a two-foot by two-foot cage and, and sitting on wire all the time. So I get a better product. I can sell the product that that bird produces, that egg, for a slight premium. And, and, and when I worked out the premium, basically in one year, the premium on the eggs covers the entire cost of construction, and now the system has paid for itself. This is where we get into trouble. When people realize that about something, they generally come up with the good enough uh, paradox. When, when you decide something's good enough, what you've, you've decided is it won't get any better. And you've already got a massive investment into it, and often the things to get more out of it or make it better are small at that point. You've done 90% of the work. The last 10% gets you 100% more production or 100% more efficiency. And failing to do that last 10%, then we go take our energy and start a new project before that one's been maximized, and we take it 90% and leave the last 10%. And then we do it again. 
And we have all these little layups we could be completing. And when I was a business consultant, a lot of times, that's what I would do. I'd go into a company and go, all you got to do is this, this, and this. And they're like, oh, we never thought of that. It's because you never looked at it because you decided it was good enough. I just did this with a company I've recommended many times. Did it for free. Metzer Farms. That's where I buy my ducklings. We decided we wanted new gooses and some more uh, Welsh Harlequin ducks in the spring. So we had to order them now before they sell out. Get on over to Metzer. I know the web like you know stone cold. For those that are new to the show, I ran a web marketing concern for about 10 years. Put everything in my thing, complete the shopping cart, can't advance, can't figure it out. And what they had done is they'd made a modification that pushed buttons apart, and it wasn't clear what to do anymore. I took a screenshot of it and showed them what to do, and hopefully they fixed it. But the thing is, that was costing them business every day because most people won't sit there trying to figure it out, and most people won't even complain about it. They'll just say, can I get this somewhere else, and it works? Okay, I'll go there. And they don't even know what they're losing. That's that 10%, or in this case, maybe 1% effort necessary to improve your efficiency 20%, 30%, 40%. So how I'll do that with this quail uh, system. In the summer, I can put shade cloth over it. In the winter, I can put greenhouse film over it. Not real expensive stuff, just basic greenhouse film. I don't need to turn it into a full-on greenhouse. I don't really want to. But I can just cover it with basic greenhouse, even leaving the ends open and vented, and I can extend my growing season in there. Okay? And in the summer, I can do the same thing with shade. So on one side, I'm going to put in a row of shelving that goes across at about three foot high with automatic misting systems that hold trays. In those trays, I can grow baby greens and microgreens on a much more massive scale, and I now have another product to sell to my customers. I've talked to many quail breeders. They said they don't really go up places. They kind of like stick to the ground when you're talking about Courtney's Japanese quail. If they do, I already have a really simple and expensive way. I can just have a basically a piece of chicken wire that hangs down and uh, protects the plants from the birds, And then I just lift it back up, and I can access my plants. 100% automated. Down the middle of the greenhouse will be a single piece of half-inch pipe with standard sprinklers on it that will mainly water the floor. So that keeps the, the, everything growing on the floor for the quail's use. On the other side of the, the, the structure will be another shelf, just like the one that grows the baby greens and microgreens. And on there will be trays low-cost soil, because I'm not growing high-quality stuff for myself, and it's going to go down in a very nutrient-rich place. And in those trays, while the quail are in that space for a week or two, I'll seed those with the same types of things I'm growing for the quail on the ground. When the quail move to their new location, the areas that they've worked the hardest, you just peel those out of those thin trays and drop them on the ground like sod, and I, I create a quick reestablishing system where the quail, when they come back, have lots of stuff to forage on. Now I cut my feed costs. So now I've increased my sale price while cutting my cost. That's greater profit. This is where this thinking leads. And you can do this with a business in financial services. You can do with this with a business in telecommunications. This is how to think. You can do this in your own personal life, even if you never grow a vegetable. You can do this with your own personal finances. This is how to think about it. So now I've got a food product for humans, a food product for the birds. I've got low labor affixed with automation. I'm not done yet. 
I'm not done yet. Since I don't keep chickens, I have a surplus of compostables. So in each uh, segment, there'll be a bin, the kind of bin that you mix concrete in, the, the deeper ones, though, the 15-gallon ones. I think they cost 10 bucks at Lowe's. I'll throw some holes in the bottom so it doesn't get too soppy wet, throw all our compostables in there. The quail go in and, and, and tear that stuff up. If they don't do a good enough job, what I might do is get two little bantam hens, two little bantam like silkies or something like that, and coexist them with the quail. They'll do a little bit better job of composting. Dorothy and I don't eat that much food between the two of us. It's not that much compost, but now you've got compost being produced. Now, if I want to make new quail, I need to incubate them, but bantam chickens have been used to incubate quail. So what I can do when the cycle times work up right, I can skip an incubation period for myself, and I can give the bantam chickens, when they go broody, the quail eggs. Since the quail eggs incubate for 18 days, and that's all it takes, I can time the cycle so the bantam chickens are in one segment completely alone and unmolested by the quail to do their brooding duties, before the quail get back to that section, and then I can just move the quail chicks, since the size of the, the holes in the, the system are small enough that the chicks can't get out, and the bantams by hand at first, until the chicks are big enough not to be molested by the adult quail, who they're probably replacing. Or I can move them into a small tractor system if they're just a meat run, which would be the primary way I do that, because two bantam chickens are probably not going to replace my whole flock. I'm probably going to do that with actual artificial incubation. But if they go broody, and I give each of them... 15 eggs, and they hatch them, I have 30 quail that I can now run for, for a few weeks indoors, and I can finish them to eliminate having an overpopulation of my aviary with a small quail tractor, which should be very easy to do, and have pasture-finished meat. From those, I might select a few larger females to improve my brood stock, but in general, that would be a meat run. See how simple that is? Now I've got meat from the aviary, meat from the periphery. I've got a little bit of chicken action going on there. I've got little birds that are not going to cause problems with the quail, not aggressive. Got that going. Not done yet. Because I also have, now have a compost yield. So now I have a compost yield. So I can use that to increase the fertility of the vegetables that I'm growing. And they also need a dust bath. So they need a dust bath, so I'll put down another shallow pan with, with sand and grit in it, and of course they'll manure that. When it gets too manured, I'll just dump that into the compost, and now I'm adding minerals, and I can also put in that dust bath, I can put things like oyster shell so that my birds get calcium, but when they consume the calcium and defecate it, either while they're playing in the composting bin or playing in the sand pit itself, now when I put that into my compost, I have bioavailable calcium for my plants, where if I just dump oyster shell on the plant, the plant doesn't really grow very well. Over the, over the, 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 uh, the process, each time they move, I'll take a couple bucket loads of wood chips, and just have a big wood chip pile out there, and kind of spread it around where they've been, and we'll be building soil inside the aviary. Every once in a while, we can go in, and I have each section of the three sections broken into four segments, and remove the top layer of a segment is a really rich, high-quality compost. I have a second compost yield. This is all stacking functions. I don't have to do any extra work to make any of this happen. Or when I do, it's simply that harvesting of that simple yield. And it's all located in one place. It's tight. All right? But I'm not done yet. 
What I can also do is grow a second human plant yield in the summer. I can go to the back side of it and leave enough space so that a vine can go up behind the shelf that the trays are on. I can plant things like butternut squash and tomatoes into this extremely rich soil, take one little piece of, of hardware cloth and basically make like a tree guard till that vine is up past the shelf. I can trellis that inside the whole thing, increase the shade for my birds, minimize my need for things like shade cloth, have a protected, beautiful environment for squash, tomatoes, and other vining fruits to go in that's constantly irrigated, constantly fertilized, and largely protected from predators uh, or from insect pests because the quail and the little couple little chickens in there will eat them. I, I, I don't even know what else I'm going to be able to do with this. I'm going to have heat lamps in there on timers for the winter to help the birds stay warm. I'm going to have automatic lighting set in there also on, well, the, the, the heat lamps will be on what's called a thermocube, which will turn them on and off based on how cold it is. Uh, but that'll help keep the overall internal temperature of whatever segment the birds are in, along with their own body heat, warmer than normal. So that's an additional opportunity to grow things in the winter or start plants when maybe they would be tough to start in an unheated greenhouse. I mean, you just, when you start thinking this way, you start seeing how all these pieces fit together. Um, so that's, I, hopefully that helps you kind of think about how you can apply that type of thinking in your life in general. And I want to kind of talk about exactly how you do that. The first thing you do is you think before you act. You think before you act. Because sometimes things are really stupid, but they seem smart because there's already something there. So my initial thought with this is I was going to build this system. I have a little shed that we don't use anymore, an 8x8. Eight eight. I was going to put like these cattle panels on like wings, and you let them out to one side, out to the other, and they have the, the, the building as a shelter. That was more work. It did nowhere near as much as did, this does. It wasn't as ideally located. It required me to remove a tree. I was basically destroying a shed that if I ever do need to sell the property, unless a person wants quail, that would eliminate the shed as an asset to the property. Where if somebody's going to move in here and they don't want to raise quail, they either have an instant greenhouse, or if they don't like it, it's relatively easy to take down, and cattle panels are useful for 25 years. And there's not a lot of work to taking it back down. It's a lot more work to build and take it down. You take it down, you have cattle panels, they go do whatever you want them to do, Uh, you pull the boxes apart, throw the, you know, either throw the wood away because it's rotted at this point, or if it's still good, repurpose it, spread the dirt out, you have fertile soil back in an area, and it's gone. So it's much less permanent of, of an alteration of the property, right? So that's because I thought before I acted. If I just said, oh, that's a great idea, and went out and all of a sudden started cutting holes in the side of that building, it's a lot more to fix. So number one, you have to think before you act. You have to balance thinking before you act with not acting at all. Because that's where this whole common sense breakdown happens. I don't know everything yet, so I'm not going to do anything. Well, if you take that approach, you're not going to get experience, and you're not going to increase knowledge. So you, you can't increase experience and knowledge, so you can't make better decisions in the future, so you remain in a stall pattern. I, I've just described... The average American today, and for all the beating up we do on millennials, that's the average millennial, it's the average Gen Y, it's the average Gen X, and frankly, from what I've seen, it's the average baby boomer. That's exactly where they at. They, they don't know enough to act, so they don't act at all, so they don't gain more experience, so they don't do shit. And they want somebody else to do it for them, so it'll be okay. 
And when that doesn't happen, they just deal with it. So they end up controlled by the system that they claim to want freedom from. The next thing you have to do is an elemental analysis for most decisions. So there's simple decisions like what color socks do I put on today? Well, whatever you like. It's not that critical. But if you're dressing like for an office job or something, it might actually require a little bit of an elemental analysis. What clothes am I going to wear? What shoes am I going to wear if my socks are going to be visible? If my socks aren't going to be visible, it doesn't matter a hill of beans, but I might want to think about comfort. That's an elemental analysis. It's not always complex. But when I think about something like building the quail aviary I just talked about, location is critical. I'm going to want power and water there. So I, if I start out with reasonable proximity, that helps. I want a relatively flat location. I do kind of want it to be out of the way, but not out of sight, out of mind. I want a building near it, but I don't want it next to the house. So that right there, I think, okay, I've got this outbuilding, giant garage, doesn't really fit there, but I've got this secondary outbuilding, 800-square-foot building, Behind it is a fence line. That's about as out of the way as you can be, is to be near a fence line. It's almost completely flat back there. I'm not ever really going to do anything with that space because of the type of land that I have. I would never put a pond there. I wouldn't necessarily plant trees there because the soil's so shallow. Since the soil's shallow, I can dig a really shallow trench around the system when it's done, fill it with gravel, dump a little Portland cement on it, and prevent critters from being able to dig under it because they're either going to dig into the, the cemented gravel or the rock bottom, right? The, 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 the limestone slab that it's sitting on. So... That's an elemental analysis. And then the, the continuation of that is all the things I just talked about. How, what does the quail do? What does it produce? What are its intrinsic characteristics? How does it act? What are its outputs? What are its needed inputs? What, what, what changes does it create within there? Oh, I want to throw in one more thing about that system. So the other thing is those birds will be in there for 7 to 10 days. They can do a significant amount of taking down the vegetation. So why want to limit the vegetation they can take down? So the other thing I'm going to do is build some boxes, just real simple boxes out of like two-by-fours. So they're really shallow boxes, a couple feet square. And then put a piece of two-foot hardware cloth across them. And then you just set that on the ground. Now in that location, that bird can browse the greenery but can't get to the dirt. That means that only half of the location can actually be taken down to bare ground in any shape or form per rotation. So when I move the birds, I also move their little cubes and restrict them from the most worn places. And then when I'm putting down my sod that was grown on the back shelf, it can go to those locations. And there's enough sod on one shelf to replace with this simple, the trays that you use to grow microgreens, these thin trays, to cover 50% of the surface. Cool, huh? I mean, that's elemental analysis. And... and Anything you do, if you start with kind of this elemental analysis, you come to a much better decision about what to do. Look at the stove we talked about, right? What is the stove supposed to do in general? Replace a cooktop. So the, the, if we have something that does two things okay, it probably doesn't excel at either one. So let's look at a, a generalist versus a specialist approach to this item and what works better. And if the thing is, I really don't care if it's a little bit bigger, and I really don't think I need the additional cook power, maybe the all-in-one works. But if we, do, we dig deeper into the elemental analysis, do I see myself cooking on my back porch if it's easy? I do. That means this is a better choice. That's an elemental analysis. 
right? You hear words like that and you think like they're for people in lab coats and shit, right? But it's common sense. You perform an elemental analysis when you're sitting on a limb in a tree as a kid and you look at a tree branch sticking out and you think, can I jump to that thing like Tarzan, grab on it, swing, get my feet to the next branch and get across this gap, right? You perform an elemental analysis. How, how big am I? How far can I jump based on what I've known before? How big is that branch? Uh, based on previous experiences grabbing on things, am I going to be able to hold on to it when I grab there? Does a branch look not only big and small enough that I can get my hands around it and grab on, but it's also big enough and healthy enough looking that it's not going to break and send me flying to the ground. Once I get onto that branch, if I do successfully do it, the branch I want to put my feet on, how far is that away? Right? And then there's a final like risk assessment to this. How high up in the tree am I? If I'm going to fall three feet, I'm probably not going to put that much effort into the elemental analysis. I'll see if it works. If it doesn't, I'll hit the ground. If I'm 15 feet up in the tree and the result of the limb breaking is I'm going to lay on my back and make that, <gasps> that sound like that, right? Like, like when you can't get your air, then I'm going to put a little bit more thought into it. I might even say, you know what, let me find a place that looks like this that's closer to the ground and try that first if I've never done it before, if I'm thinking with common sense. Little kids that grow up outside and climb freaking trees think this way. I know because I was one of them. And it doesn't always work. And sometimes you get hurt, but then you learn. For instance, there was a tree that I did that exact exercise in probably a hundred times when I was seven, eight years old at an apartment complex I lived in. And it sure looked like that branch would always hold. And one day, I got a little bigger. The branch got a little weaker. I grabbed the branch. Down I went on my back. And I laid there trying to breathe. And here was common sense. I didn't panic because I'd seen it happen to other kids playing sports and stuff like that. And I knew it would pass. And then I thought a little bit more before I took risks like that in the future. Now, what we want to do today is we want to put like a bubble around all little Johnnies and little Jills and make sure nothing like that ever happens to them. And then they become incapable of doing the things that I'm talking about today. It's not that common sense isn't real. It's that common sense requires experience. Common sense requires a human being a human so they'll have the common sense of a human. Right? What we have today are the, is the common sense of a controlled being versus the common sense of a free being. And that's why people can't think in these adaptive ways, because the people that want to control you do not wish for you to think in these ways. They wish to enable this type of thinking in you in a single speciality that you're employed to do and eliminate it everywhere else so that you are a simple cog in the machine. You don't fix your own shit. You use somebody to do that. That's good for the economy so they can make money off of your labor and they can leverage your ass with debt to the point where your kids that are going to have kids that are going to have kids owe the money that's being used to control you today. And that's why it's uncommon. Not because it doesn't exist. The next is find one, find ways that one thing or action can be multiplied. We've kind of talked about that a lot today, so I won't reiterate it a lot with examples. But when you look at something, instead of trying to buy an all-in-one device, buy a specialized device that does more than one thing. So an example of that in our stove would have been a Dutch oven. A Dutch oven, it looks like to the average person who's never done campfire cooking, never really understood the purpose of a Dutch oven, it looks like a pot made out of cast iron. It is. They're not wrong. That's what it, It's a pot made out of cast iron. But they don't understand what it does that the pot doesn't. They don't understand that you could set it next to a fire and put coals on the lid and use it to cook. 
They don't know that. They're ignorant of that fact. They're not stupid. They're ignorant. There is a difference. I'm ignorant of things. Trust me. There's things I do not know. There's things I know that I don't know that I don't even know. Right? We're all ignorant of something. Ignorance is a curable condition. It's curable with knowledge. You know, sometimes you tell somebody, I think you're behaving ignorantly, or that was an ignorant response, and they think it's an insult. No, an insult would be you're too stupid to understand. Right? Ignorance assumes, it's a benevolent assumption, that you don't have the knowledge necessary. So if we give you that knowledge, you may see things differently. Because your response was so out of whack that it can't possibly be that you know this. Right? Because the other assumptions, again, you're, you're, you're too dumb to be able to use the information even though you had it. Or you're so worried about pushing your agenda, you're willing to twist the facts to make them appear otherwise so that you can make your point so you're, you're immoral. Or you're completely immoral and you don't even give a shit about the facts at all. You're not even twisting them. You'll just say whatever it is to get your way. So ignorance in that situation is a benevolent assumption. And we can get there by doing an elemental analysis, right? But if we're going to be able to cure ignorance, we're going to have to start looking at how we can get more done because that leads to greater experience, and greater experience leads to greater knowledge, and greater knowledge leads to the curing of ignorance. So there's nothing more beneficial to that than looking at something and saying, what else can it do? So if I buy a Dutch oven... I can make the most fantastic pot roast with carrots and potatoes and celery and in my oven. It does that better than anything else in the world in a plain old oven. But I can also cook at a campfire with it. I can make beer bread and bake it in a Dutch oven in my oven or on a campfire. There's so many things I can do with a Dutch oven beyond just what a pot will do. It's a specialized piece of equipment that's also a multi-purpose device. And sometimes it's not a thing that has multiple functions, but an action that has multiple actions. I've set up my quail, for instance, so that I'll have to naturally walk past my garden wicking beds. That means that I'll pull weeds out on the way and throw them to the quail, or if something needs to be harvested, I won't let it go too long. Or if there's a pest problem, I'll see it. Uh, if there's a pest problem, like let's say I have a squash leaf, that's covered in bugs, and the leaf is not important for the plant, and the bugs are on the plant, I can cut the leaf off and take and give it to the quail. The single action of having to go out there once a day to pick up eggs and check on them takes you past another area. You can do this in your business. You can set things up. So if you, for instance, have to go to take your coffee break in a coffee room, you can set up so employees that are going to take their coffee breaks that also need to use, let's say, a printer to pick up documents that they print, that that isn't a pathway on the way to the space. So that way that you can you can make a policy for your employees. If you're printing stuff and you don't need it right away, just leave it on the printer. Nobody's going to steal your stuff. If they do, you can print another copy. We're going to fire somebody that steals other people's prints. If it's not like, you know, anything being printed in a community printer shouldn't be like confidential information anyway. So if you print stuff, just leave it there until you take your coffee break or your lunch break or whatever, and on your way back, pick it up and take it back to your desk. Now we've improved efficiency with a single action. And, and that starts to, to, to cascade to what else can we do? We, we can look at something like, I don't know, I have, sitting in front of me right now, I have a French press for making coffee. Well, it also makes tea. I mean, so, I mean, that's kind of a simple thing. But since it's a French press and it's not electric, I can use it when the power's off or when the power's on. 
And the reason it's sitting in front of me right now is it makes about two big cups of tea, and I try to drink tea when I'm podcasting because it helps my throat. So when I, if I have a, you know, a little tea ball or something like that, then if I want more tea during a podcast, I have to pause, I have to go back out to the kitchen, I have to boil more water, what have you, where what I can do is I can make a, a full French press full of tea, bring it in here, pour one cup of it during the middle of the show, my throat needs a little recuperation, I can hit pause, pour the other cup, have a sip or two, and go back to doing what I was doing, which is one of the ways I just recovered from that impersonation of the sucking, you know, air knocked out of your lungs thing, because I needed it after that. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that have all kinds of things in their home today that do more than one thing, but they don't know that. There's all kinds of people that if I give them a recipe for chicken soup and the recipe calls for parsley and they have everything but the parsley, they can't make the soup because they don't understand just to eliminate the parsley. So it's the concept of multiplication or subtraction whenever necessary to get the job done. So find ways that one thing or one action can be multiplied. And I want to talk now about, like, well, why are we doing this? How, how does this lead to liberty? Because that's what I think this really does. It's not just about being more efficient, making more money, making a higher profit. I believe this stuff makes you more liberated as an individual or a family. First of all, I, I believe that small actions alone are not enough to win the fight. So I advocate, for instance, if you drink alcohol, learning to make your own ciders and beers and wines and meads and stuff like that, because it does eliminate the taxation on alcohol and you can make more for less money. But if that's the only thing you do, let's be honest, making a few gallons of hard cider a week is not a rounding error on a government budget, even a small city budget. So it doesn't really change things. And it's not enough money by itself to really improve your life unless you take the money you save and do something else effective with it, then it begins to multiply. So if we're going to be able to do that, there's no possible way that I can sit here every day on the Survival Podcast and tell you every way to do this for everybody in America. I have to empower you to be able to apply this knowledge for yourself and individual actions that you want to do because you don't like everything I like and I don't like everything you like. Some of you will never drink a drop of alcohol. We talked about making cigarettes yesterday. I'll never smoke a cigarette in my life. I have no interest. None. But you can apply the knowledge to what you want to do. Some of you love to garden. I don't really like to garden much. I like to grow perennials. Some of you prefer gardening. Some of you don't want to do either one. Some of you just want a lawn that you don't have to take care of. Some of you love to cook. Some of you don't like to cook. You get what I'm saying. Some of you are big-time entrepreneur types. You want a business of your own. Some of you just want a job, and you want to be able to manage your life so the job doesn't manage you. So this... This concept, for it to work, you have to be able to take all the little things you do. Remember, one of my modern survival tenets is what you do matters. But how much it matters depends on how much you do and how smartly you link the things that you do together and how intelligently you reap the rewards of what you actually get out of it. Next, I believe that if you properly assemble several small actions... They multiply their results to not only be a, a, a total, it's not two plus two plus two, right? It's two times two times two. So we get two plus two plus two, we get six. We go two times two, we get four. Four times two, we get eight. We do it one more time. We go with the, with the plus, we get eight. And with the two times eight, we get sixteen. 
we start to broaden the gap very, very quickly. Do it one more time. Do it one more time. Two times 16 is 32. Add two to eight, you get 10. The delta grows exponentially. And that's how these things that we talk about doing in your life, from learning how to make a knife, to learning how to fix your own car, to learning how to grow your own food, to learning how to forage, to learning how to hunt, to learning how to cook for yourself, to learning how to preserve your own food, to learning how to protect yourself, to increase your property's value, to increase your property's security, to increase the knowledge of your children beyond what they could ever learn in school. All of these things, when added together, they start that multiplication effect. And, I mean, I also just want to say, like, this is how you adapt to the interactive edge with the state that you don't think is right, that a state says you can't do something, or you have to do something, or the cost of something is X, or the tax on something is Y. Because if you wait for a lot of change so that you can have what you want, you re it may result in you being very, very old or very, very dead before that ever happens. Because if you paid attention to the way this country is going, it's not moving toward greater uh, liberty through legislation. The move we have toward liberty today is all from people that are finding ways to get around legislation or to simply create things that nullify legislation. And I don't just mean state-level nullification. I mean, I'm going to just put myself somewhere where 90% of this shit doesn't apply to me. And I'm going to do so much so fast that if they ever do try to bring it over here, they're going to have to grandfather me because I ain't going away. They're going to blast me out with dynamite before I'm going to leave. But if we just think we're going to change the system by being politically active, you'll probably be dead before you have the freedom to do everything you want. I don't mean because they'll kill you. I mean because it'll take that long. You're a finite being. There's a dash that's going to go one day between two dates, the day you were born and the day you died. You only have so much dash. So by thinking this way, you get to do what you want now instead of hoping someday you'll be allowed to, permitted to, or have the money to. Because that's the other thing people think. When I have enough money, I'll do these things. Well, you may never have enough money either. Or if you start doing the things, it may result in having enough money to do even more. The next reason is there's always a solution to almost every problem. People are just mentally lazy. People are just mentally lazy. I people all the time, well, I'd like to do this, but the government says I can't because, you, you know, whatever. And you think about it for five seconds and you come up with a solution. Whether it's a place where eggs are illegal and you sell cartons that come with free eggs, or, or whatever. I mean, there's always a way. There was a time to tell you how universalist thinking is. Myself and Neil Franklin that I used to, to work with at a company called Syrian that did uh, telecommunications consulting uh, and, and software services for uh, a lot of big carriers, but specifically AT&T. AT&T had a problem. They wanted to engage us, okay, but they didn't have a budget for a product. And what they really needed was a, a, a software module that they would buy, that would attach to the stuff they'd already bought from us. But they didn't have the budget at the end of the cycle in that box. Can't buy the, the module because it's a product. And you got, I, I swear to God, the lady that was running the sales team, we had hired her and made her the president of the company, had a degree, a master's degree from Stanford. And, 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 and she had in the past worked for Accenture. So you're talking about, like, a top pedigree for a business person. Stanford, 
master's degree and Accenture experience in the background. Two other very uh, educated uh, people and two engineers sitting in a conference room trying to figure out how to solve this problem. And they were all going around trying to convince AT&T to just move some money from their services budget to their project budget. The problem is AT&T is a bureaucracy and you don't just do that. So I'm sitting there and I've got my, 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 my head buried in my hand. I can't believe what I'm looking at. And I'm like, why don't you just cut the price of the software module to almost nothing and supply the services to support it for the price that you're taking off of the software and call it software services and, and have when your people, you know, have the people available for consulting and things like that. So the customer gets what they need. We get the order so we don't go out of freaking business and everything's fine. And they actually fought it. They actually fought implementing that solution. They're like, we can't just do that. Well, what do you mean we can't just do that? I got the president of the company sitting here. I'm the chief operations owner. I've got the, Neil sitting there. I got the owner of the company here. Who, who above us is necessary to make this decision? Well, what if they always wanted to do this? Do this? I don't give a shit if they always want us to do this. If they're going to give me a million dollars in revenue, I'll call it. I'll call it poop on a stick, as long as it works. And it took basically us forcing them to do it. Now, why? Because you can't do that. That was the mindset that they have, and and part of it is they're mentally lazy. They're mentally lazy. They couldn't come up with it themselves. So when someone just sitting there listening to this crap for five minutes goes, all you got to do is this, they can't accept it. They can't accept it because they didn't think of it. And, and in general, people like that will fail miserably without ever trying, and they don't even know they failed. They'll just say, well, there's nothing we could do. And this is the other side of that. The fact that most people are mentally lazy is an advantage for those of you who are not. If you take the type of thinking we're talking about today, you can adapt around people so quickly they have no idea what happened, especially bureaucrats. Bureaucrats, code inspectors, stuff like that, you get creative with what you're doing, you can get around almost anything. Or at least, even if you can't get completely around it, you can figure out what you can do that does empower you, that does give you what you want. It might not be what you thought you want, you might have to make an adaptation. You might have to select rabbits for, for a, a food product over something like a chicken, based on where you live. You may have to think about how you set things up so that nobody even knows what you're doing. right? You may have to do some things that are technically illegal or against code. But if nobody can see it, no one can tell, it doesn't matter. You have to be willing to break the rules. One of the most important things is to understand the rules so that you can know how to effectively break the rules. Okay? I mean, that's just the fundamental to this type of thinking. That if we all do things the same way or the way that we're expected to, we'll all get the same results. And have you seen what the average results of the average person are? They suck. They're miserable. This country is, is, is fat, lazy, incapable of thinking for itself anymore, medicated beyond belief, just on, on the, the psychological, psychoactive medications alone. We have children, we have children on Schedule two narcotics because they don't sit still enough in this country. Those of us who think beyond the norm 
have the ability to excel beyond the norm. And that's because every person is smart. Every person is smart. Even the people that you look at and go, they have no common sense. God, that person's dumb. No, they're smart. The human being, even people that we consider lower than average intelligence, is the most intelligent creature that we know of. When it comes to the ability of the brain to do things. Remember that little discussion about throwing a rock at a tree? Do you know how much computing power it takes to get a computer to throw a rock at a tree? If you're not sitting there going a little, okay, I'm going to make that a little higher, that arc a little. If you actually create artificial intelligence where the computer has a robot arm and it throws the rock and there's some type of observational module and it sees the rock as we understand that and understands the rocks and makes a new calculation and, and adapts and it finally gets to the point where you take that tree and you take that computer and turn it at a tree that's five times as far away and give it a rock that weighs half as much and try to get it to do that again, it has to go through the whole process again. It can't really learn. And even as we're building computers to learn that way, the amount of, of what it takes to do it is, is incredible. It takes a bunch of guys from MIT to build that. But you give a four-year-old some rocks and have them throw them at a tree, it doesn't take them long to realize the way that a rock has some level of uh, to do with, with how much force is needed to get it to go a certain distance. And when you have them throw it further... It doesn't take him long where he stops just trying to throw it as hard as he can and starts just saying, how much more do I need to get it to that point? You put a basketball in his hands and have him do it with a rim, and all of a sudden, once a kid is old enough and strong enough to actually get the ball up to the rim, we make these adjustments in our mind at, at this, literally the speed of light. So we're brilliant. We're absolutely brilliant because that's one of the lower level tasks that we're capable of. That's actually one of the lower-level tasks that we're capable of. A human being has the mental capacity to look at how a tree grows and see a limb damaged and see that if you put it back up, it will start to grow again and say that means I can take this limb off of this tree, put it on that tree, and that's called grafting. And that creates freaking life. Or to save a seed from a plant that produces a better quality plant, nothing else on planet Earth does this consciously. We're all smart. We're all brilliant. I think it was Einstein that said, every, every, every person is a genius. But if, a, if you judged a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it would spend its entire life believing itself to be stupid because it's how we're smart. And what that tells us is being smart is not enough. It's the application of the intelligence. And you can see this. If I give three people a toolkit, a full, like, full-on workshop, miter saws and chop saws and radial arm saws and band saws and routers and planers, I mean, everything you can think of in, in a conventional wood shop, and a giant stack of wood, some people will give me nothing back. Some people will build magnificent, beautiful furniture. Somebody might build a house. Somebody might build a crappy spice rack. Every one of those persons has the same tools. The knowledge is where it's different. And then the application of the knowledge and the drive and the desire, the motivation and the desire and the application, that's what's necessary to make something out of what you have available. Because there's so many people whining about what they don't have, they don't realize what they do have. 
You know, I, I have a friend. It's a dear friend. I've been friends with him since the Army days. And one day we had this conversation. He was in between jobs. He was afraid he wouldn't get a new job, blah, 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 like a freaking Eeyore. I even did a show about this back when this happened. And um, he starts describing the life that he wants. And I'm like, dude, there are millions of broke-ass rednecks that live that exact life. Now, if a broke-ass redneck can live that life and you can't, what does that say about the problem? And it's, it's you don't understand what's available to you. You're not willing to make the sacrifices. You don't really have the motivation. You're looking for an excuse, whatever. You, you have to take the intelligence and the application and combine that with motivation and desire if you're going to get shit done in life. And this is why you have to do it or suffer serious consequences. Whatever you don't design and control in your life will be provided for you. I mean, I guess that's that's... That's like the silver lining of the today. It's, it's, it's pretty um, adequately provided for you in that even the biggest failures among us in America today, if they're smart enough to fill out an application, would be able to acquire some level of governmental support and basically eat and be housed and fed, right? And, and it, most people do a little better than that. They at least have a a run-of-the-mill job or something like that, and you know they can afford uh, a place to stay, and they, they, they get into some kind of a life, and they find some kind of a partner in life, and they, they build something akin to a family, and they have debt and whatever, but it, it's all part of the great design. And when I say the great design, I don't mean like the creator's design. I mean the great design of the people that run the country. They've designed this. And, and you either decide which which hole you're going to jam yourself into and sit there and be controlled and let the system determine your results based on how much effort you'll put into getting high into where you insert yourself, right? So you can insert yourself as a fast food worker, or if you want a little bit more, you can insert, insert yourself as a bartender at a nice restaurant. Or you can insert yourself as a customer service representative for a decent-sized company, or you can insert yourself as a diesel mechanic. You can insert yourself as somebody with a pretty good education and willing to work hard as a salesman and, and be higher up. But in the end, no matter what you do, if you don't understand the system that you're trying to, to optimize and also to exist on the outside of, it controls you. You either do the stuff I'm talking about today, or society decides these things for you. You, you have basically a ceiling. It's not a glass ceiling like some people talk about, right? It's a freaking lead ceiling. You, 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 you cannot breach it. You cannot breach it because what you've decided is, like I said earlier, since it's good enough, it doesn't need to be better. And, and, and all it leads to in the end is misery. I, I know people that I care about that I wish I could change this for that I can't. That you know are, are are 15 years or less from retirement, and, and they have some money put away and all, but they have so much debt they're not going to retire. And I don't mean people that are going to be retiring because they're going to hit Social Security age. I mean people that like they have a job where they have a retirement from their job, and they're looking forward to it, but they're not going to be able to take it, and they're growing their debt every day because that's what they're supposed to do. I know people that are following the rules that are literally destroying their futures by following the rules. And, and I, I, I want to help them change, but they don't want to change. 
It requires the type of thinking that I'm talking about today. And they're not willing to do it, not because they're not capable, because they're afraid of the results. They're afraid that they'll really see themselves in the mirror if they do. They're not afraid that I'm going to tell them that they have to stop spending money they don't have. They're afraid that they'll realize. They already know, but they'll, they'll, they're afraid that they'll actually have to stop. They're not afraid that they might figure out that what they're doing professionally is making them miserable and they have to make a career switch at 30 or 40 when it's hard. They're not afraid that like by, by, by talking to someone else, that person's going to make them do it. They're afraid to actually, under, to, to actually take it in its totality and realize, I need to do this. They're afraid of the consequences of reality. And if you're afraid of the consequences of reality, you cannot think the way I've described today. It's impossible. Because every time you start to do it, you'll begin to become uncomfortable. Because here's how this works. I don't care if you use it to set up a farm. I don't care if you use it to set up a business. I don't care if you use it to simply set up a lifestyle. Right? As soon as you start to think this way, it begins to permeate everything in your life. And then the next time you're thinking, God, if I just had a raise, I could afford this credit card bill. Your mind goes, no way, buddy. It doesn't work that way. If you get a raise, all that's going to happen, if you keep doing things the way you're going to be doing, is you're going to get your credit limit increased, and you're going to end up in this problem again. And you're going to spend the money before you even have it. You have to change the system-level things if you're going to fix this problem. And you go, I don't want that. The hell with that. Screw that. I want my shit. I want my life to go on uninterrupted and stay miserable because I am able to buy myself these intermittent bits of happiness. And, and I look at some of these people that think that's what they're doing, and I go, I never see you happy. I see you smile once in a while. I see you laugh at something. And it, it, it's sad, but I've, I know people that I see do that, and you can see the happiness, and it swells, And it's like a wave, and it just ebbs, and it just goes away. And they actually look more unhappy after they've had that moment than before. They return to that sadness, that depression, that misery. And you, you don't have to follow my example in what I'm doing. You don't have to go start a small farm and a podcast to find whatever works for you. But you have to follow the example I'm giving you of how to think today, no matter how scary it is. I think it's far more frightening to not do it. Part of how I ended up where I am is even when I ended up, you know, as an owner in a company, and we would have a financial liar, as I call him, come in for a new 401k plan and talk to my employees. And I'd sit there looking at my employees' faces, and the guy would be like, you know, you invest in the more risky stuff because most of you guys are younger and you'll be doing this until you're 65. Uh, in fact, many of you, with the way they're changing things now, will be working your job until you're 70. And I'm looking at the face of a 24-year-old kid smiling and nodding his head at a pie chart that's just been told you're going to work till you're 70 and he's okay with it. And it horrified me. It horrified me. And I'd sit down and look at my own retirement planning and, 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 and see it spread out to 65, 70, and it horrified me. Where now, if I work till I'm 85 doing this, I don't give a shit. I'll be an old man going, I've been telling you guys for 60 years, what you, and I'll keep doing it. I love it. And I'll be a crotchety old man making my ducks go to bed. I love it. I'm not afraid 
to work till I'm 60 or 70 now. Because I love what I do. But the concept of doing something I hated, even if it was paying well, even if there was a lot of benefit to it, but to do something I literally hated, which was not being human, not being myself, having to deal with people who didn't really want to deal with me, having to try to help people that didn't really want to be helped, for God's sakes, to do that, and I was, you know, when I, when I started this show, I was 35, 36, something like that. And I sit, I'd say 35 and think, I'm going to do this shit for as long as I've existed. You know that, 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 like 15 years of childhood where you're just like, ah, you're happy. You don't give a shit no matter how bad things are. I'm not even getting that 15 years. I'm going to take that 15 years, the 20 years of bullshit that I've dealt with, put them all together and do that all again. And I might drop over dead the day that they say that I'm done. And there's no guarantee it'll work either. Screw that, I'm out. And I took this type of thinking, and I've made it work. And you can too. You can't follow my template. You have to follow the methodology. I hope that helps a lot of you with your thought process going through the week. And remember, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, with this type of thing, this application of knowledge toward creating greater liberty in your life. You're on a sliding scale. There is no static in real life. You're either creating greater liberty for yourself or through inaction or through improper action, you're heading toward greater, greater tyranny, less liberty, less freedom, less choice in your own life. It's not the choice to make. It's not what we were born to be. The human being is a spiritual animal, in my view, that was optimized in its creation through evolution for freedom and liberty. A wild being with the greatest intelligence of anything on our planet that has been domesticated like a cow. Go feral, people. Rewild. And think while you're doing it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You know where you're going when you don't know where you've been. You have the shame that you're not showing, and you won't let anyone in. A crowded street can be a quiet place. When you're walking alone And now you think that you're the only One who doesn't have to try Then you won't have to fail If you're afraid to fly Then I guess you never Scars have never healed The emptiness in you is growing With so little left